Welcome to Live at the National Constitution Center, the podcast sharing live constitutional conversations and debates hosted by the center in person and online. I'm Tanea Tauber, Senior Director of Town Hall Programs. Last week, we hosted an informative discussion on a key affirmative action case before the U.S. Supreme Court. Our guests were Jin Hee Lee, Senior Deputy Director of Litigation and Director of Strategic Initiatives for the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, and Elon Werman, Associate Professor of Law at the Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law at Arizona State University. They discuss the history and meaning of the 14th Amendment and how the amendment informs the debate about whether or not the Constitution is colorblind. The program was presented as the keynote panel of the annual Law Symposium hosted by the University of Pennsylvania Journal of Constitutional Law. Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, moderated. The conversation was streamed live on January 27, 2023. Here's Jeff to get the conversation started. Hello, friends. Welcome to the National Constitution Center and to today's convening of America's Town Hall. Before we begin, I want to thank the University of Pennsylvania Journal of Constitutional Law, including Richard Hughes, Simone Hunter Hobson, and Trevor Kirby for inviting the NCC to collaborate on this discussion. Uh, thank you so much for joining uh, Jin He Lee and Elon Worman. Um, it's wonderful to convene both of you. We're going to begin with a broad question. Do you think that the Harvard Affirmative Action Program is consistent with the 14th Amendment or not? And after opening statements, we'll dig into questions like, is it consistent with the original understanding of the 14th Amendment? Is it consistent with Brown versus Board of Education? And what about specific aspects of affirmative action as it's practiced? Um, so with that introduction, um, Jin He Lee, it would be wonderful if you would lead us off. Welcome to the conversation. And please tell our audience why you believe that the Harvard Affirmative Action Program is consistent with the Constitution. Well, thank you so much, um, Jeff. And I want to thank the National uh, Constitution Center as well as the University of Pennsylvania Law School for having me. This is really an important event and a really important conversation and so glad to be here. Um, you know, this is this question that you asked is important to me personally, but also professionally, because I am an attorney at the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, which is the late um, Thurgood Marshall's firm that he had founded. And he, of course, was the first uh, black Supreme Court justice. And um, from, from the very beginning, when affirmative action has been litigated in the federal courts, um, we at LDF have uh, always maintained that um, affirmative action programs are very much consistent with the 14th Amendment. When we think about the um, Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment and, and the reasons that it was um, enacted, and I know we'll get into this more later in the program, but um, we have to remind ourselves of, of why that, that you know, very important part of the Constitution, uh, the constitutional amendment was enacted. And it was because we lived in a society that was grossly um, unequal to the point where we were, um, you know, it, it, a large part of our population was enslaved and not even considered to be full human beings. That is the society that we lived in when uh, the 14th Amendment has been passed. And, and we have been in a you know, generations long effort to remedy that egregious sin, that original sin of the United States. And so now we look at affirmative action and affirmative action can occur in, in different places, but focused on higher education. And it's so essential. And I think this is um, this has uh, been said quite eloquently in the Supreme Court opinions 
that um, have really affirmed repeatedly, um, you know, affirmative action higher ed for over 40 years. So this has been a very stable kind of concept within um, the federal juris jurisprudence. But the notion that, you know, higher ed in particular is a gateway for, um, for, for developing the leaders of this country, that, um, that higher education is also a place where you are supposed to be encountering people of different backgrounds, different experiences, and so forth. And especially in a place like higher education, it is so essential for all students, regardless of their race or their background, to have the opportunity to, to be a part of that um, educational setting, to contribute their experiences, and also benefit from the, um, the, the opportunities that um, that educational experience would afford them. And unfortunately, we live in a society where our K through 12 educational system is grossly inadequate and grossly unequal. That is undisputed and it is unequal along racial lines. And so in order to achieve the goal of, of, of having the best um, education for our students so that they could truly learn from each other. It's essential to look at diversity of all kinds. And, and, and certainly racial diversity should be one consideration among many. And I think that's really important for, um, for everyone to understand that when we're talking about affirmative action in higher education, we're not talking about quotas. We're not talking about people getting accepted to a particular school because of their race, solely because of their race. We're talking about the ability to consider a person's race in combination with the myriad characteristics that um, colleges and universities look at. And certainly for many, many people of color, their race has really been a, been a very um, tr uh, formative part of their, of their development. It may be a formative part of their education, the opportunities that they had received. It may be a, a very uh, uh, important aspect of their, of their identity that they want to explain to the college and university as to why they in particular will contribute to um, the, uh, the student body and be a benefit to the educational setting. So for all of these reasons, you know, it's just really, for, for to, it's just really in actuality um, quite contrary to the 14th Amendment to say that a college and university cannot consider race among many, many factors when, uh, when thinking about trying to formulate that diverse student body that they think uh, would create the best educational setting for them. Thank you so much uh, for that opening statement. Uh, Ilan, I'll ask you a version of the same question. Is the Harvard Affirmative Action Program consistent with the 14th Amendment or not? And I'm going to decline to answer the question uh, for the short for the for the reason that I was asked actually to write a brief. On the, as you mentioned earlier, uh, Jeff, I have a book on the original meaning of the 14th Amendment, and so I was asked to write a brief in the Harvard admissions case. And I declined to do so, actually, because it strikes me that this question is very hard. I, I won't totally dodge, uh, and I will say that my instinct, my inclination, uh, is that it's not consistent with the Constitution, but it will be dependent on the particular program that we're talking about. Okay, so, so having said that, why... Why is this the, the view that I'm taking? Why is it probably inconsistent with the Constitution? Again, depending on the particular program that's at issue. I'm going to sketch out a few things that I know, Jeff, you want to talk about a bit later. Um, but to me, when you ask, you know, is it consistent with the 14th Amendment? And is it consistent with the original understanding? To me, that's the same question. As you know, I consider myself an originalist. We could get into that uh, another time, perhaps. Um, and so let's talk about the original meaning of the 14th Amendment and just the framework that I would apply to analyzing these questions. 
The first point I would make is that the Equal Protection Clause is actually the wrong clause. Uh, and, and why is that? Because the protection of the laws was a narrow legal concept of judicial remedies against private interference with private rights. It was, the, in addition to that, it was the government had to actually physically protect you from private violence, from like the Ku Klux Klan, right? So mob violence was the quintessential violation of the protection of the laws. So what guarantees equal rights in the 14th Amendment? It's the Privileges or Immunities Clause. The clause that says no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. What are the privileges and immunities of citizens of the United States? These are the kinds of rights that all free governments have to secure, contract rights, property rights, First Amendment rights, Second Amendment rights, that kind of thing. Okay, those are the privileges and immunities of citizens of the United States. There's a question out there, by the way, and we can talk about it maybe with Brown v. Board, whether public privileges, like public education, are covered under the privileges and immunities. Are, are public privileges the kinds of things that are these fundamental rights that all free governments have to secure? I have a new paper in the Virginia Law Review where I argue, yes, they are, and I explain why. I'm not going to get into that there, but let's just assume for the sake of argument that public universities, public schools are, are covered. The question then becomes, uh, what is uh, an abridgment of the right? right? So, so we know the black codes uh, we're in abridgment. Why? Because race has no reasonable relationship to why we have contract rights or property rights. So the black codes in the South that said the newly freed people couldn't own property. They couldn't own guns, right? These were abridgments because race has nothing to do with contract rights, property rights, uh, and, and, and so on. So they were abridgments of these privileges uh, and immunities uh, of citizens. Okay, so how does this apply uh, to uh, potentially to affirmative action uh, programs. The first thing that I would say is actually the Privileges or Immunities Clause is more helpful, I think, to proponents of affirmative action uh, because it allows for disparate impact analysis. I mean, there's some disparate impact analysis, right? The law could be facially neutral, but if it in, there's a disparate impact on race, there's a debate over whether that should be unconstitutional without an intent to discriminate. Well, the Privileges or Immunities Clause says no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities. So you can enforce laws that in fact, in practice, abridge these rights. Okay, so you don't need discrimination on, on, on the face. Okay, I mean, that's a lot. So how did, might this apply to affirmative action? Well, I know we're gonna talk about the history. There are lots of examples of so purportedly race conscious legislation that Congress has enacted. There are lots of briefs. Some of them I think were put in the, in the notes already in the chat that say, look, Congress is allowed to enact race-conscious legislation. Now, I think this is kind of trivial, right? Because Congress passed these laws that say the states are discriminating in the black codes. Stop discriminating against black persons. Stop discriminating against on the basis of race, okay? That's race-conscious in a truly trivial sense, right? It's like we know that the 14th Amendment says stop discriminating on the basis of race. If Congress passes a law that says stop discriminating on the basis of race, yeah, that's race conscious, but it's totally trivial. It's totally useless to the question, okay, about affirmative action. Why affirmative action is more difficult, okay, is because unlike this legislation that Congress enacted, creating a Freedmen's Bureau, right, because black people were not getting protection of law uh, from courts in the South, contract rights weren't being enforced, so they set up courts so that the contract rights and property rights of the newly freed people, you know, could, could, could be enforced and so on. Why saying, you know, striking down the black codes, right? Why are these all different? Because they're not zero sum, 
They're not zero sum. Affirmative action seems different because we're not talking about, sure, all people shall have the opportunity to go to school, to public schools if they want. All individuals shall have the right to contract if they want. All individuals shall have the right to own guns. All individuals shall have the right to own property irrespective of race. Those are obviously constitutional things, right? When a state says, look, we have, or a private university that gets funding, right, as it turns out in the Harvard case, when we have a fixed number of spots, it's not the same thing. It is a zero-sum game. And when you have to all of a sudden use race, right, um, as a factor to get people admitted who otherwise wouldn't be on the basis of other criteria, uh, and in the Harvard case, it turns out you can statistically show that you, in fact, to, to do that, you must deny individuals of another race a position that they otherwise would have qualified for. And the the data show, I'm not a st statistician, I'm a lawyer, I don't know anything, right, other than what the parties tell us, uh, you know, the, it, it seems that there is discrimination on the basis of, uh, uh, against Asians, Asian Americans on the basis of race. And so this is different because all of a sudden, it's not just a state trying to remedy past discrimination. It's not just a state trying to remedy disparate impact, okay, because none of that would be making or enforcing a law that abridges privileges or immunities. It is trying to remedy what they understand to be systemic or, his, you know, the result of historical discrimination that requires making laws that abridge the rights of other people on the basis of their race. And that's why it's really, really complicated, because the former goal seems to me totally plausible under the 14th Amendment. But if it has the impact of discriminating on the basis of another race, all of a sudden, what's the answer? It's really hard. And that's why I refused to write a brief. But you knew that when you invited me, Jeff, to participate in this. Uh, and so that's the best direct answer I'm going to give you. You can even call that a direct answer. Uh, thank you very much indeed for it. And uh, it well sets up the, the next part of our conversation, which is to dig into the text and original understanding. Um, Jinhee, you, you've heard Ilan make uh, his argument that uh, he thinks that the um, right to attend public schools should be considered a privilege or immunity of citizenship. And although he thinks it's a hard question to uh, parcel that out on the basis of race as an abridgment of privileges or immunities of citizenship. In the oral argument in uh, the Harvard case, Justice uh, Jackson uh, had a very different view of the original understanding and noted to all sorts of race conscious laws that Congress passed at the time of Reconstruction, suggesting in her view that the point of the 14th Amendment was to help uh, black people um, not to require colorblindness. Can you please give us your understanding of the original understanding of the 14th Amendment and why you believe it is uh, consistent with affirmative action? This is a very important question. I feel, I think, touches upon kind of two fundamentally different um, uh, viewpoints of what um, equal protection and race discrimination is. So um, let's take the, like the colorblind argument, which is what um, you know, the plaintiffs in the affirmative action cases have brought. And, and what they seem to be arguing is that, um, that our con constitution is colorblind, that we shouldn't see race, like we shouldn't even think about race in, in many ways that um, race is, is bad, that um, it would be wrong to, to acknowledge race or to have that be a part of um, any kind of consciousness in terms of of, of decision making and so forth, and um, and you know, and I and we've seen that 
in a lot of just current events. You know, the the, the kind of uh, movement among uh, many conservative activists to remove books that discuss race or, you know, arguing that words like racial equity and cultural competence are actually, you know, proxies for discrimination and so forth. So this is a very, very uh, real um, uh, kind of a very, what I consider a dangerous viewpoint, but it is a viewpoint that that many people feel very strongly about, but it's one that I that I think is, is very wrong and inaccurate and, 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 and doesn't really understand the nature of inequality and also the nature of inequality at the time that the 14th Amendment was enacted. Because when we think about, um, again, going back to what I said earlier about the time of, you know, the um, the late 1860s, uh, the late 19th century, you know, we were in a situation where uh, uh, just, you know, a, a, a large swath of our population were not even considered human beings. They had no legal status. They were not even recognized as 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 um, as full as citizens at all. And and of course, in order to remedy that, we would have to change their legal status and change the laws to recognize that that's that's unequal. That it's, it's wrong to for the law to treat people differently on the basis of race. But I think what's really important for um, all of us to kind of understand and to know, and I think everybody kind of knows this instinctively, is that you can say that you know, the law is equal and that you shouldn't discriminate. But that doesn't mean that inequality disappears. The, the, you know, you have generations and generations of, of, uh, of a society that had treated a whole group of people as second class, not even second class citizens, not as citizens at all. And so um, there is, you know, there's the, the nature of the inequality that we're trying to talk, that we're talking about, that the 14th Amendment was addressing was not just that the law treated people differently. It was because that everyone had considered this group of people to be inferior. And, and, and that was the reason why um, they were treated differently. And, you know, just by saying that, okay, we're going to change the law, those, 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 those uh, systems of inferiority continue to persist. And, um, and it's actually, in many ways, kind of cementing and sustaining pre-existing uh, inequalities to kind of embrace this colorblind notion because, you know, it's, it's actually coincidentally very advantageous. Colorblindness is very advantageous for people who had, you know, the advantages, you know, during the time of expressing very explicit discrimination and then to say, okay, we're just going to say that race doesn't matter, but the world is going to be the same. And, and that is the country that we have inherited. And that is a country that we um, that we live in today. It's not to say that, of course, you know, 2023 is not the same as, you know, 1868 or even 1950. But to say that all problems of race discrimination, racial inequality have been solved is is really kind of turning um, is, is, is ignoring the realities of what we see. Uh, on a daily basis. Now, what's really remarkable too is that the arguments about why we should not be race conscious because it discriminates against other people, that you know it's a form of reverse discrimination, it creates stigma for people who it victimizes them. These are arguments actually that were made in the late 19th century. These are arguments that have been made all along. So never in this country have we fully embraced the uh, a full uh, a full effort, a full flown effort to uh, to remedy the uh, the inequalities in our country, and um, because the same arguments we hear today were made, you know, centuries ago, and so there's always been this obstacle to try to really achieve true equality. Now, um, 
I think also too that, you know, I think our, you know, the conception of what equality is, is, you know, and I appreciate um, what Alon said about the privilege of the immunities clause, because, you know, the, the notion of citizenship, I think, is very, very important in this conversation. Because, you know, at the time before, um, at the time of slavery, when when black people were not even considered, not, not considered human beings, but not considered citizens. And what does citizenship mean? And, um, and the 14th Amendment not only recognized, you know, black people as full citizens for the first time, but also that they were they were entitled to the equal protection as citizens. And what does that mean to be equal as a citizen in this country? And um, and I think that is actually the very difficult question that we need to answer, which is what is what is it to be equal in this country? And um, and and what and then we'll talk about Brown in a little bit. But um, a key component of citizenship, in addition to voting, which is why you know, we have the 15th Amendment, which is such an important part of citizenship, but a key component of citizenship and, and, um, and being equal citizens is public education. Because as, as the Brown decision said, that is the foundation of good citizenship, is our public education system. This is where children go to learn, to learn about our country, to learn about um, our role in this country, to learn about each other. And, and I think that is, is just very, very important to understand that when we think about equality, we think about what does it mean to be a, a citizen in this country, to have equal access to all of the benefits that everybody you know, is entitled to as a citizen in this country. Um, what, does that, what does that look like? What should that mean? And the role of education in ensuring that equal citizenship among you know, everyone in this country. And, um, and, and education is such an important part of that because you know, education is the gateway to so many opportunities. It's, it's, um, it's where we, um, it's where we uh, um, advance ourselves. I and mean, that's one of the you know, kind of great things about the American dream is that everyone can kind of work really hard and advance themselves. It's through education. Education is such an important part of that. But education has for too long been denied to certain groups of people. And, and it's undeniable that that inequality has fallen on racial lines persistently um, uh, throughout, you know, throughout our history. Um, the other thing that I just kind of um, want to just mention is in this act of citizenship and being active and being able to kind of, you know, as a citizen, have a say as to your government, as to the country that you live in. You know, one of the kind of ironies about originalism and talking about, you know, what did the framers think when they passed the 14th Amendment? I mean, an act to the 14th Amendment um, and all of the legislation in the past. You know, we have to remind ourselves at the time that the framers were all white, that, you know, that black people were not, you know, they were not able to participate in that civic debate. They were not able to to engage in that conversation about what does it mean to have equal protection under the laws. And I think that in itself is something that we should be thinking about is that, that you know, having institutions where black people are excluded or, or, or predominantly excluded, where they're not able to be, you know, kind of, um, uh, to be able to contribute um, their experiences, their perspectives and the development of, of, you know, kind of our civic institutions, you know, is, is a harm to everyone. And I think that's one of the reasons why, um, uh, Justice Powell in the in the Bakke decision, which is one of the first cases that dealt with affirmative action, really talked about why this really affects the legitimacy of our multiracial democracy. And that really does, because if we have um, selective higher inst educational institutions that are um, that exclude 
large groups of our populations. And what does that say about the legitimacy of those institutions, as well as the, you know, the, the, the leadership positions that those, those institutions often um, fuel? So, um, so that's my, you know, kind of brief answer to your question, which is a very hard question. But, um, but I'll let, I know Alon has much to say and has been done doing a lot of scholarship on this issue. Thank you so much for that extremely thoughtful um, answer to the question. And Alon, you've heard Jen's um, answer, which uh, began by emphasizing that the framers of the 14th Amendment did not intend, she said, to forbid all racial classifications, but only those intended to stigmatize or degrade. And then she said that the text of the 14th Amendment requires the quality of citizenship and that equal access to education is necessary to ensure that equal access. I'd love your response. Um, um, in, in your book, in discussing Brown, you say that the case for desegregation is, is, is simpler under the original meaning of the Privileges or Immunities Clause than, than Brown suggested. You say, if public education is a privilege of citizenship, and you can see that that's not obvious as a matter of original understanding, and if the purpose of the segregation laws was, as everyone knows, the perpetual subordination of one class of citizens, then denying the same rights to this privilege is an abridgment of the privileges or immunities of citizenship. I'd, I'd love you to really tell us um, it's obvious that subordination violates or abridges privileges or immunities, but what is your argument for why uh, racial classifications that are not intended to stigmatize or degrade or subordinate are also an abridgment of privileges or immunities under the original understanding? So I don't know that they are. Uh, I haven't conceded right, or, or, or stated uh, that I disagree with Jin He's position uh, on this. I agree that the crux of the argument, uh, the crux of the meaning here is subordination, right? You can't make or enforce laws, which in fact, in practice, abridge the privileges and immunities of citizens. That means you can't make or enforce laws uh, that in fact lead to black Americans or Asian Americans or any other Americans on the basis of skin color, at least, right? And you can't make distinction, other arbitrary distinctions, but what those other arbitrary distinctions are is much more debatable, but we know race uh, is what they thought was an arbitrary distinction. So if a law leads to unequal contract rights or unequal property rights or unequal educational privileges, right, then uh, that's what abridges their privileges and immunities. They have less rights, right? You, you basically create a favored class of citizens. So if you go back, right, to the early 18, uh, the mid 1800s, just after reconstruction or during reconstruction, there were no complaints about, you know, black only schools because they hadn't really had schools before. And plus what white teachers were going to, you know, I mean, there were white northerners, right, who came down to, to give instruction, right? What white students were going to come and so on. They thought uh, at the time, right, that it would be better for their own education to at least have all black schools at the time, right? Now, over time, it turned out that this paradigm of having separate schools was a recipe for inequality. Why? Because you give them fewer resources, it creates the stigma. So what I'm saying is in Brown v. Board, it was an obvious case, right? And why? Not because uh, there's a distinction on the basis of race on the face of the statute, okay? Um, that should always raise eyebrows, right? But because as Charles Black said, he was a legendary professor at Yale Law School who grew up in Texas. He said, after, the after Brown v. Board, he said, the, the, what's all the fuss? These, these cases were easy. Once judges open their eyes to what every Texas schoolboy knows. And remember, he was a Texas schoolboy. 
that the Jim Crow laws, the separate but equal laws, were not intended to keep the two races separate and happy and equal, but precisely to keep one in subordination to another. That is what makes it unconstitutional. Okay. And I agree with all of that. And this also, by the way, I don't know, you know, flag the implications for affirmative action. It's not clear to me, by the way, and I'll get to that at the end of my answer. But this also makes sense of the congressional legislation that Jin He talked about. Uh, it's true. The Southern, not the Southerners, they weren't represented yet in Congress. The Northern Democrats opposed things like the Freedmen's Bureau. They said, oh, it's class legislation. You're giving special treatment to, you know, the black population. It's like, no, no, no. We're trying to give them equal treatment, right? White people have their rights enforced in court just fine. The Ku Klux Klan isn't going after white people. Well, most white people, right? White people in league with black Americans were, you know, also victims and so on. So we need courts just so that they have the same privileges and immunities. We need the Freedmen's Bureau. Okay. The other thing that I'll so so again, what does this say? It says race conscious laws that Congress enacts in order to strike at discriminatory practices in the states, sure, obviously they're constitutional and obviously they're race conscious, but they're race conscious in a trivial sense, okay? In the sense of saying, yeah, don't discriminate on the basis of race is a race conscious statement, okay? But that's sort of trivial and again, I think kind of useless um, to, the, to the affirmative action question, which is sort of zero sum and requires, our, in, some, in some programs, uh, denying people on the basis of race an opportunity that they otherwise might have had. Okay, that's what makes it a hard a hard question. The last thing that I want to add here is uh, what Jin He says about like white men participated or, or drafted. That's that's true. That's true. Just like it was only men who drafted the Nineteenth Amendment, granting women the right to vote. Right. I mean, at, at, at some point, it's the people in power when they expand the franchise and they expand the democracy. They're the ones making that choice to expand, right? But it's not, it's, it's, it's worth commenting right, that a lot of the freed people in the South did participate uh, in, in, in the recon in reconstruction, in the ratification process of the 14th Amendment. And actually, if I may, since you mentioned the book and I have it here, this is the cover of my book. It's called The First Vote. You know, the, these are three uh, black Americans, right? It's a, a farmer, a merchant, and a soldier. They're voting in 1867, before the 15th Amendment. Why? Because the Reconstruction Acts um, empowered the freed people in the South to participate in the voting process that elected new, new uh, state constitutional conventions, that elected ratification conventions. Some of them participated in the ratification conventions uh, for the 14th Amendment. Yes, it's true. Congress forced this down the southern states' throats, but they lost the war that they started. So I'm not going to lose any you know, sleep over that. So there was widespread participation in the South among uh, the freed people. There were so-called colored conventions, where conventions of Black Americans, they would get together and they would you know, opine on the issues of the day and their grievances. And there's a beautiful passage that I quote, I think it was in the Alabama Colored Convention of 1867 that says, what do we mean by privileges or immunities? We just mean we want the same right as, as you to walk on the, you know, on the street, take the public trolley, take, you know, that's all we want. The same privileges and immunities that you give white people, we want too, right? So they were very much in, in the throes of this debate. They were very much involved in this debate, even if they weren't actually in Congress uh, until 1870, I believe was the first member. Um, might have been earlier, but I'm pretty sure 1870 at least was when Hiram Revels became senator um, from, I believe, Mississippi.
I, I heard you uh, say something, uh, a significant area of agreement with uh, Jinhee, namely that in your view, the Privileges or Immunities Clause, if construed according to its original understanding, does not forbid all racial classifications, but only those that stigmatize and degrade, and that it's an empirical question, it's not obvious in your view, whether or not uh, a law, in this case affirmative action, is creating a favored class of citizens that stigmatizes or degrade or not. And you say that's a hard question. Um, Jinhee, as you, as you hear uh, Elon's answer, I, I want to now ask you to talk about Brown, because in your brief, you say, Students for Fair Admission now seeks to turn Brown on its head, involving that, invoking that seminal ruling to ask the court to turn back the clock and cause Harvard to be out of reach to many students of color who, due to persistent inequalities in K-12 educational opportunities, are not able to gain that competitive edge to assure their admission. Uh, tell us why you think that Brown is consistent with affirmative action and why forbidding affirmative action would seek to turn Brown on its head. One of the reasons why the Brown decision was so transformative is because, you know, it really, it really viewed the nature of inequality under the 14th Amendment as, um, as something that, you know, in connection with the subordination of Black people. Because, you know, in Plessy v. Ferguson, there was this sense that, oh, you know, people are being treated equally if you have equal, you know, you know, you separate but equal would be fine um, because, you know, it's, it's a matter of kind of society and social preference that people don't want to be associated with each other and not recognizing. I and mean, I think it didn't grapple with the question of, you know, as, as Alana alluded to, as actually spoke about, which is why is it that they wanted to be separate? It was because they wanted they wanted to be separate because they considered um, black people to be inferior, to be a subordinate, to be less than. And um, and that was something that that Brown addressed head on. And I, I think um, the court and, and to give credit to the lawyers that litigated Brown to kind of explain that to the court, that that understanding of the 14th Amendment um, needing to address that component of inequality. It's not just, you know, a, you know, whether like technically or if there's some sort of abstract way one can say that one's equal under the law, but in, but behind that um, distinction that there's some sort of stigma, that there was some sort of um, sense of subordination that was very much uh, underlying um, that distinction, that racial distinction. And, um, and you know, and, and the connection of that to the connection of public education, the fact that this was ha happening in the public education system, having this really deep impact on the citizenship of our, you know, future uh, future people in this country, future citizens, that that children were being taught that this kind of um, the 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 separate treatment, the 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 notion of inferiority by race was a natural occurrence in our country. Like that was something that was that was ingrained in the very, you know, kind of social structure that was developing, you know, the citizens who would then go on to become voters and leaders of this country. And so I think all of that made um, Brown an incredibly powerful decision and also one that um, did not, that I think, and this is what's really kind of ironic that the plaintiffs SFFA have kind of tried to um, uh, kind of flip Brown on its, on its head saying that for some reason, Brown would be in support of the notion that um, that race consciousness was somehow akin to 
to Plessy and that, you know, that that only, you know, racial racial classifications that that are only colorblindness would be, you know, kind of um, uh, um, consistent with um, Brown's understanding of the 14th Amendment. And and I think there's another component of this that's really important in the higher education space, because, you know, Alon mentioned the claim of discrimination against Asian Americans, which has been a very, very um, controversial um, and much discussed topic around around this case, especially the case against um, uh, Harvard. And and you know, I think that one of the things that has been um, inaccurately discussed is you know who is qualified and who is entitled to be accepted to you know selective colleges, universities like Harvard, and and what is the criteria that they are looking for. Now, Harvard has never said, and then they've made this very clear in their briefs, but I think that it's, I think we can all agree none of their brochures or their, you know, promotional materials have never said that what they are looking for are students with the highest standardized test scores, that uh, students with these particular extracurricular activities, um, students that had this particular GPA. Now, certainly there's probably a, a minimum level that they, they would want that they would that they would want so that the students could succeed and be able to kind of um, bet fully benefit from the academic opportunities at Harvard. But certainly it's not it's probably more of a threshold, not that, you know, you have to reach it's not for the, 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 the people who have the highest scores, for example. So when we're talking about affirmative action, especially for places like Harvard, what we're talking about are trying to select students, all of whom are qualified all of whom have exceptional test scores, all of whom who have exceptional grades, extra, exceptional, extra, I mean, these are, this is, you know, they, they could probably uh, admit five, 10 times their incoming class of the people who, who applied to Harvard. And so um, what's, what's been misconstrued, I think, is this notion that, that certain students, and especially Asian American students, are being rejected from Harvard so that less qualified students can be accepted. And I think that that is just simply not true. I mean, that's something that, you know, SFFA can argue and people, opponents to affirmative action can argue. And that certainly would be the case if, for example, there was, you know, if you said that, um, we're, you know, Harvard said, I'm going to admit all of these students because they're black, regardless of their grades or their SATs is because, you know, like, but that's not what's happening. What's happening is that Harvard has all of these very qualified, exceptional students, all with a myriad of different um, characteristics and different assets and different different um, different elements that they can contribute to the student body, and it and it could be things like it could be their interests, their academic interests, it could be um, where they live, it could be whether their parents went to college or not, it could be, and then to say though that that student's race is completely irrelevant in trying to kind of think about, okay, we want to have the most diverse student body that we can with all of these differences. Now, it's not to say that race is the only thing that matters, but um, to say that it doesn't matter, and that's what colorblindness is, is trying to say, is that it doesn't matter, in some ways discriminates against the students where race has had a really formative part of their lives. And I think that's something that, um, that Justice Jackson had spoken about quite eloquently in the oral argument, because, you know, you can, you can have someone, you know, talk about a lot of things and maybe race is not a big part of their lives, but it's more likely that a person of color would have 
would have race be something that's very important in their lives that, that they would consider to be a positive attribute, that they consider to be something important that the college university should know about. And so, um, so I think that's just really important to know because this assumption that Asian American students are being discriminated against when in fact there are many, I mean, it's not, we're not talking about a situation where um, there's this large number like that under, you know, that Asian American students are underrepresented or we think that, um, or, or any kind of indication that, that Harvard does not like Asian American students or that they have a bias against Asian American students. The, 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 um, the, argument um, about Asian Americans being discriminated against really hinges on the assumption, which is not proven, that they are more entitled to be accepted to Harvard or these other schools than other students. And, and when you look at those arguments, it's almost always reliant on test scores and, and GPAs. And, and I think this is indicative of the inequalities in our K through 12 system, because you know students who have access to AP courses, students who have access to test prep, students who have ex access or the ability to have you know really you know lots of different extracurricular activities, is oftentimes not dictated by potential or intelligence or capabilities or anything like that or talent. It's oftentimes dictated about resources, and so um, and you know and and again these resources have have been unequal as long as we've had public education system. So, you know, I think that that is something that really needs to be corrected because if you compare the students who got accepted who are not Asian American and the students, you know, who didn't, it's just to say that they're somehow more qualified, the ones that didn't get accepted are more qualified. It's just an assumption that people make. And, and I really want to challenge, you know, everyone to think about like, why do we make that assumption? And I think this goes to the heart of why the Equal Protection Clause is really important when we talk about the um, affirmative action, because so much of racial stereotyping is embedded in how we think about affirmative action, because it's very easy to assume that a Black student or a Latinx student is not qualified, because that is a stereotype. That is, that is something that people have believed and have said for many, many generations. And there's, you know, scientific research that shows that people, you know, we have these biases, these inherent biases. There is also a stereotype that Asian American students are smarter and that they work harder. And, and that's a stereotype that's very much alive. And, and in my mind, that's just as dangerous. It's just as dangerous to say that a student is more likely to be smarter or to be more likely to be successful at a school because of the race as it is because because that means that another student is not as smart because of their race. And so I just really want people to challenge to think about like why do we assume that certain students are more entitled to go to um, a college or university as opposed to another student? What are the criteria that we're talking about? And I'm not saying that you know schools like Harvard do a perfect job in their admissions process, certainly not. And I'm not saying that there's not other ways of making things more equitable, but when we're talking about affirmative, act, affirmative action, what we're essentially talking about is, can you consider race at all? Like even a little bit, like, is this any consideration or is it absolutely prohibited and something that a college university should not even think about or look at? And I mean, that's, it's, it's, it's black and white that way. And, and what I would suggest is that you should be able to think about it. How much you think about it, that's up for debate, but you should be able to consider race as one of many factors when deciding what your incoming class is going to be among all of the students that are all qualified. Any of them could be, you know, any of them would be equally um, capable of succeeding uh, at a place like Harvard.
thank you so much for that extremely thoughtful intervention. Ilan, you, you heard uh, Jin just say that the constitutional question under Brown and under the 14th Amendment is, can you consider race at all? And she says, yes, uh, Brown and the 14th Amendment, as originally understood, did not require complete colorblindness, only a ban on subordination. And to forbid any consideration of race is to discriminate against Black students and to also make stereotypes about their relative abilities. Just um, focusing on Brown, did, did, um, is it right that, or, or not that, that you think that Brown is basically forbidding subordination? You, you quoted uh, Professor Wright, everyone knows that the purpose of segregation was to degrade and stigmatize Black people, and therefore you say it was an easy case because it was clear that there was subordination involved. Uh, is that right? And, and do you think that, do you reject then the idea that Brown requires total colorblindness? And for you is the question whether or not affirmative action subordinates and degrades, and how would you think about that question? Yeah, that's that's a great question, and I'm going to try to answer it in what Jin He raised, trying not to agree totally with Jin He, because I do agree with a lot of what she said, and th- which is why I think, by the way, this is a difficult question. So let me back up and say, first, first of all, by the way, Brown rejected the original meaning. They said it's too late in the day, it's the history is too complicated. They should have seized the original history by the horn. They should have reversed slaughterhouse. They should have gone to the original privileges or immunities clause. And this would have been, it would have made more sense. Okay. Uh, that way. So to that extent, I reject Brown because I think the original meaning makes a better case for the outcome in Brown. Okay. than the court in Brown did. So the question is, and this is why it's hard. Okay. And I'm, I'm not trying to dodge. Okay. And I'm not trying to chicken out of giving an answer, but this is why I refuse to try to breathe. What the clause prohibits is abridgments. Okay, but we know that states routinely regulate rights all the time. Okay, they can require licenses under certain conditions for getting a firearms. Okay, they can prohibit certain kinds of contracts that they are unconscionable. So states make regulations of rights all the time, time, place and manner restrictions on speech rights. The question is, what is a regulation of a right and what is an abridgment of that right? Because we know states are allowed to regulate. What they can't do is abridge. How do we know what the difference is? What is an abridgment? That is the million dollar question. I guess a million dollars used to be a lot of money, like in the 90s or something. So, you know, a trillion billion dollar question, okay, that no one's asking because this is being litigated under the Equal Protection Clause, when the real clause is the Privileges or Immunities Clause. And I think the answer is by no means obvious, okay, but I think it would be helpful to the affirmative action folks. I don't know that they're right under it, but here's how I would propose answering it. In my view, the answer is a regulation is a regulation rather than an abridgment if the purported regulation reasonably relates to the purpose of the right, okay? If it reasonably relates to the purpose of the right, here's what I mean. This is why the black codes run constitutional because skin color has no relationship whatsoever to contract rights or to property rights or to gun rights, okay, or to assembling, you know, so it is totally irrational. This is, by the way, why a gay code, okay, that said gay people can't enter into contracts, gay people can't own property, gay people can't have guns, would be equally and as obviously as unconstitutional as the black codes, and I don't have to decide that being gay is a protected class, whatever that means, right? Why? Because sexual orientation has nothing to do with the purpose of contract rights and property rights, okay? Now, Should marriage be defined as between a man and a woman? Is that a regulation of the content of the right of marriage? Or is it an abridgment of that right? 
Well, this is a much harder question, right? Because unlike the gay codes, we know sexual orientation has something to do with the purposes of marriage. And this is why the purposes of marriage were debated in the Obergefell case. It turns out gay Americans can participate um, in the welfare institution, the health and economic element of the institution, and the love, belonging, dignity element, right? And even today, child, you know, rearing and bearing, you know, if not equally, then close to equally, they can participate. The point is, that's the question we should be asking. Is limiting marriage to a man and a woman reasonably related to the purpose of marriage or not? I'm not saying I have the right answer to that question. I think it's a difficult question. Okay, but I think Obergefell, by the way, is plausible under that. Certainly not clearly erroneous, such that it should be overturned under Justice Thomas's theory of precedent. Okay, why do I talk about all of this? Well, as Jin He said, who is entitled to admission, right? Supposing all of these people, okay, have you know the minimum threshold, like say say, say Harvard doesn't allow anybody with a 400 SAT right? But they'll allow anybody with at least a thousand, okay? On that assumption, and on the assumption that, that as and I, which I don't know if it's true, right? I didn't litigate these cases. I didn't sue Harvard, okay? I'm not an expert on any of this, but assuming it's true that um, the applicants, right, the uh, of a certain race have on average a lower GPA and a lower SAT score than, say, the Asian Americans do. So to get into Harvard as an Asian, you have to score better. Let's assume that's all true. Okay, and I don't know if it is, but let's assume it's all true. Could it still be reasonably related to the purpose of higher education to say, okay, but we want a melting pot of a society in higher education. We want uh, to create the next generation of citizens, and therefore we need folks of different um, races and ethnicities and nationalities and backgrounds and so on, such that it may be that Asian Americans have to uh, score higher to get in. Because there are more of them, there are more high scoring of them, whatever whatever the reason is. Is that reasonably related to the purpose of higher education? It's a hard question. It's a hard question. And sometimes I feel like I'm the only person who thinks this is a hard question, when everybody else is so sure that they know what the answer is, right, under the Constitution. And so I think it's a legitimately hard question. And what I will say is it might depend on what they say the purpose of the race consciousness is, Okay. And this is, goes back to the, the particular programs. If the purpose is to remedy historic discrimination, okay, then letting in, you know, an immigrant that came from um, the UK who recently immigrated to the UK uh, from a North African country and then recently came to the United States, treating them the same way as a descendant of um, an enslaved person in the United States would not be reasonably related to that purported purpose. So if that's the stated purpose, most affirmative action programs, as far as I know, don't have a checkbox for saying descendant of a formerly enslaved person, you know, in the in the 1800s in America, they don't have that checkbox. Okay, so that would wouldn't work. If it's, you know, no, we don't care if you were formerly enslaved. Uh, We think skin color matters, for whatever reason, uh, in society in life. Uh, such that people should be exposed to individuals of different skin colors. Okay, that now becomes a hard question, and maybe it becomes a policy question. And if it's a policy question, maybe it should be left to the democratic process. Uh, it's the the point is these are hard. These are hard, and I don't have ultimate answers to these questions. What I do, what I am sure about, okay, is that this is the analysis that should have been done in these cases. You know, this reasonably related to the purpose of the right under the privileges or immunities clause. But of course, no one purported to do the analysis because no one wants to go back and overturn Slaughterhouse and go back to the original meaning of the Privileges or Immunities Clause, even though we should do that. Thank you so much uh, for that answer. And I'm going to 
sum up what I've heard at this point, uh, because we're, we're, we're coming to the end of our time, um, to say how struck I am in this very thoughtful conversation that there's both less uh, difference between both of you and your views, and also that both of you see that the text and history of the 14th Amendment, um, even construed in light of their original understanding, doesn't look all that different from the doctrine as it currently stands at the court. And Sheldon Neymod asks a good question. What are the originalist arguments in favor of using race as a factor in admission to public universities? If I can sum up what I just heard Elon say, it was that uh, the 14th Amendment, as originally understood, only prohibits classifications intended to stigmatize and degrade, caste-affirming classifications. And if a uh, race-conscious measure is reasonably related to the purpose of higher education, then it's not an abridgment of a privilege or immunity. It's not intended to stigmatize. And then Elon said, it's, you can reasonably debate whether favoring recent immigrants rather than the descendants of enslaved people uh, is or is not related to the purpose of higher education or, or whether or not uh, skin color is related to intellectual diversity. But of course, that's very much the debate that we're having under the current doctrine. I, I hear both of you saying that if the court does hold that the 14th Amendment forbids all racial classification and requires colorblindness, except when there's a threat to life and limb, that would not necessarily be consistent with uh, text or original understanding and, and, and would certainly represent a big shift in the law. And if I have that right, um, then this has been a very constructive conversation about the areas of agreement and disagreement uh, that both of you have about the 14th Amendment. I think. Um, with uh, that, because it's even more important to end on time than to uh, continue a great uh, discussion uh, for uh, much longer, I'm going to thank very sincerely our great panelists. Um, I'm going to thank the University of Pennsylvania Journal of Constitutional Law for co-hosting this great event with us. And most of all, thank you so much, uh, Jinhee and Ilan, for a superb, thoughtful, and illuminating conversation about Affirmative Action and the 14th Amendment. Thank you. This episode was produced by Lana Ulrich, Bill Pollack, John Guerra, and me, Tanea Tauber. It was engineered by Dave Stotts and Bill Pollack. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich, Sam Desai, Emily Campbell, Sophia Gardell, and Liam Kerr. The program was presented in partnership with the University of Pennsylvania Journal of Constitutional Law. We've hosted interesting initiatives on constitutional change, including our Constitution Drafting Project, in which teams of different viewpoints drafted their own constitutions. Check out the Constitution Drafting Project on our special projects page at constitutioncenter.org debate. At the same page, you can check out our full lineup of exciting programs coming up this winter and register to join us virtually. As always, we'll publish those programs on the podcast, so stay tuned here as well. Or watch the videos in our media library at constitutioncenter.org constitution. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Live at the National Constitution Center on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Tanea Talber. <laughs>